1: Pastor Keith Crosby of Hillside Church.
2: And you feel terrible. You feel like, you know, if I had just done it this way, if I had stood like this, if I had just written things out perfectly. And what we're going to see here and and what we're going to learn here are three conclusions that you need to understand and embrace about how God works, about the grace of God, so that you'll understand it's really not up to you to save anybody. You just present the information, God does the saving. And I think in that, you're going to find great comfort. I can
0: see the promised land Though there's pain within the plan There is victory in the end Your love is my battle cry The answer for all my life Every dragon will fall
1: with Pastor Keith Crosby, lead pastor of Hillside Church in San Jose, California. We are delighted that you've chosen to spend time with us here on the broadcast today, studying God's Word. We would encourage you to follow along with us in your Bibles if you can. On today's broadcast, we'll be continuing with our Decoding Jesus teaching series. So if you have your Bibles, please turn with us again to the Gospel of John, chapter 6. Now, here's Pastor Keith with today's study.
2: Father, we just come before you, Lord. Let us focus our hearts and our minds on you because you deserve it, Lord. Help us, Father, to uh, look into your word and to be changed by it, Father. Help me to be clear as I uh, unpack this, Father, and help us to be game to apply it. We ask you in Jesus' name. Amen. As you know, we've been going through a series on the Gospel of John. And we call it Decoding Jesus. And what that is, is a search for the historical Jesus. And where do you find the historical Jesus? And the most reliable historical source documents available, and that is the Bible, which transcends any of the secular standards for historical source documents. And so we've been understanding who Jesus is, because there's a lot of confusion in our culture. Some people see him as a mystic, or a holy man, or a good teacher, but he saw himself and the scriptures see him, the historical records indicate that he is God and the Savior, the Savior of the world, the only Savior that there is. And we've been seeing that. You know, a lot of people say, well, Jesus didn't really see himself as that. But what we're seeing is time and time again, yes, he did. And that's a message that most people don't want to hear today. We live in a culture where people don't want too much information. They don't want to hear anything that might upset them. They don't want to be challenged. They like comfort where they are. Uh, you may have heard of uh, safe spaces in the universities today. And I was looking that up, and you know who the inventor of safe spaces was? Not somebody whose name is on the tip of our tongue these days. Tigranus the Great, the last king of Armenia. He died around 55 BC when the Romans came in and uh, do what they did, you know. Uh, and basically, he was the guy who invented the idea of shooting the messenger. If you go back in history you can look it up you can google his name when he got bad news when he heard something that he just didn't want to hear he had him beheaded and so he was told that armies were approaching and he didn't want to hear that so he had the guy beheaded because he wanted a safe space unfortunately for him the safe space cost him his life because everybody kept telling him what he wanted to hear and he perished that's the way it is today too Uh, there's a slide here that's coming up and it's of the square in Barcelona. Terry and I were in Barcelona shortly after the terrorist attack. And I can tell you that there's no such thing as a safe space in this world, physically or eternally. And as we walked through the city center shortly after the terrorist attack, this is what we saw. And we saw an outpouring of emotion, of heartbreak, of the realization that even though we may not want to hear certain things, certain things do come to bear on us because there are no safe spaces. And pretending that something isn't so doesn't change anything. And as we went through the city center, we read some of the signs. And here's two coming up in the next slide here. One was pray for Barcelona. And it was kind of a ecumenical multi-religion project where all the people from all the different religions would get together and pray to their God. And the other one was a sign here that said, no more violence, no more hate. This isn't Islam. Well, I don't know about you, but I don't think those people were Presbyterians. You know what I mean? I mean, this is Islam. This is the face of the Quran and the Hadith. And people don't like to hear that. We, we don't want to know that. We don't, nobody wanted to know, and I certainly wasn't going to say to the shopkeeper, that praying to what, any God you want to isn't going to do you a lick of good. And good feelings and good intentions don't change anything. There's only one solution for all that ails the world and it's terrorism or it's racism and it's not legislation and it's not marches, it's the gospel. That's what it is, really. You're not going to legislate morality. It's never been done successfully, it will not be done until Christ returns. And this isn't what people like to hear. People like to have faith and faith, faith and prayer, but if the object of your faith is Buddha or Allah or whatever, it's worth it's it's a fool's errand because those aren't real gods. And if and if you're just praying to pray and the object of your prayer isn't the one true and the only God, your prayers wasted. And and this isn't what people like to hear. People don't like to hear this. There was recently uh, a statement given called the Nashville Statement. I don't know if any of you have read it yet. Or you might have heard about it. And it's sort of reflected in the headlines in this slide. And the Nashville Statement basically is biblical Christians from all, all spectrums, all denominations coming together and rehearsing what's been the understanding of Christianity for 2,000 years when it comes to marriage and men and women and gender and things like that. And the media has gone crazy. They call it an anti-gay statement. Well, it's not an anti-gay statement. It's a very positive, loving, well-worded document. But this isn't what people want to hear. And so when people hear things they don't want to hear, they get mad. They get violent. They become unreasonable. And that's what's going to happen here in John chapter 6. We're going to do, I, I wanted to carve out a small piece of scripture today. John 6, 1 through 71. We're going to do the whole chapter. I hope you brought your lunch pails. And what we're going to see here is this, and it's really summarized if I had to put it this way in 2 Corinthians 2:15 2, and 16. And what does it say here? It Says we are the aroma of Christ to God among those who are being saved and among those who are perishing, to one a fragrance, a fragrance from death to death, and to the other a fragrance from life to life, who is sufficient for these things. You see, When people hear the gospel today, when people hear biblical truth, there are one or two reactions: rejection or acceptance. And the problem is, is it reminds people of what road they're on: the road to destruction, the narrow is the way that leads to life, and few are those who find it, or you know, or the broad road to destruction. You know, wide is the road that leads, and it's well-populated. And basically, this isn't what people want to hear. People like to talk about Jesus, people like to talk about God, but they don't want too much clarity and they don't want too much precision because it offends their sensibilities and it disturbs their peace because no one likes to hear that they headed it on the wrong road. No one likes to hear that they've been diagnosed with cancer, but it doesn't change anything. Being angry at the diagnosis doesn't change the facts. And what Jesus does here in John chapter 6 is he really defines himself and his message in a way that the Jewish people at that time did not want to hear. The bulk of the people, they didn't want to hear it. They wanted to put their fingers in their ears and go, la, 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 I can't hear you. And the reaction to what he has to say about himself and what he has to say about us and what he has to say about God and what he has to say about salvation cost him almost all of his followers. You know, John chapter 6 is one of these passages it's just loaded with incredible stuff. You've got the feeding of the 5,000, which is a fulfillment of a Mosaic prophecy. Moses said there'd be a prophet like him, and they were to listen to him. They were to follow him. Moses fed the people in the wilderness. Jesus fed the people there. And the people reacted and said, Is this not the prophet? They knew this is who he was. There's another mi- couple of miracles that people miss, and that is that, the dis- that he walks on the water to get out to his disciples on the Sea of Tiberias. That's, that's a miracle. That's an incredible thing. These things teach us who Jesus is, that he's God, that he is the master over nature and the universe and the laws of gravity and everything else that goes with it. There's another miracle there that a lot of people miss. It's kind of like my favorite miracle in John chapter 6, and it's almost like time travel because he gets in the boat. They're, they receive him into the boat without fear, and they blink their eye, and they've gone a mile and a half in the blink of an eye, and they're on shore. And if you think about it, traveling a mile and a half at the blink of an eye would probably break your neck because the acceleration would be so great, and the hull of the boat would shatter because it's not built to go that fast, and he's on dry land. So Jesus demonstrates his deity beyond question. What we also see in John chapter 6 is the people's spirit, or their hearts, because they're following him, it says in 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 verse 2, because... He's doing all these miracles and later on it says they're about to take him by force and make him king because they had their agenda after all and he withdrew from them and that's when he dismissed his disciples to the boats and then he gets over to the shore and they say Rabbi how did you get here because people figured out that he you know only one boat left and he wasn't on it and now they've come over to see where he is and there he is and they know that he couldn't walk around the lake that fast to get there and so they're amazed and he says you know you didn't come here to hear what I had to say. You just came here to get more bread. You came here because you wanted your bellies full, not because you wanted your minds and your souls and your hearts changed. And then he begins this dialogue with them, and it's, it's something else. And it's one that confuses a lot of people. Uh, he talks about, you know, uh, this is the work of God that you believe, because they're, they're wanting to do works to justify themselves, to make them right in the sight of God. And he goes, this is the work of God that you even believe. And then he starts talking about, you know, eating my flesh and drinking my blood, and a lot, of, a lot of superstition has arisen from that discussion, but we understand that communion hadn't been instituted yet, and that discussion has nothing to do with communion. It has to do with basically taking him in totally, and we'll get into that in a few minutes. And then he starts to explain to them the grace of God and their salvation, and this is not what they wanted to hear, because the Jewish people had lost the idea of the scriptures. They had lost the idea that the Bible teaches that from Genesis to Revelation you are saved by faith through grace, right? Genesis 15 6, Abraham believed God and it was credited to him, it was treated to him as righteousness. And so they're hearing this and they don't like it. And then he talks about whoever the Father gives to me, whoever comes to me I will raise up on the last day. Whoever, Jew, Gentile, well you know they're God's chosen people and this you know They're special. And whoever, even Samaritans, I mean, my goodness, what are you thinking? And they also realize, too, that if they come to Jesus, they can't lose their salvation because he keeps on saying time and time again, I will raise you up on the last day. And the Jews like to think that you are on probation based on your ability to keep the law and earn your salvation. There are people who believe that today, that you can lose your salvation. And Jesus is saying, no, that's not the case. And then they wanted to say, well, we came to you, Jesus, because we're special, because we get it, you know? And he says, you know... It's the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. And he says to them, you can't even come to me unless the Father draws you. And then he says to them, you can't even come to me unless it's been granted by the Father. In John 6, 65. It's not you, it's all God. And in John six sixty six, we read this. His disciples walked away from him because they did not like the teaching. And what we see here and what we can draw here are some conclusions that I want you to apply in your daily life. And that is this. A lot of times you present the gospel to people, you share the truth with your son or your daughter or your husband or your wife or your mother or your father or your grandparents or your aunts or uncles or your neighbors and they say no. And you feel terrible. You feel like, you know, if I had just done it this way, if I had stood like this, if I had just written things out perfectly, and what we're going to see here and, and what we're going to learn here are three conclusions that you need to understand and embrace about How God works about the grace of God, so that you'll understand it's really not up to you to save anybody. You just present the information; God does the saving. And I think in that you're going to find great comfort. And so, what we're going to do today is a helicopter flyover of of this chapter, and we're going to understand what's going on here in light of the rest of the gospel, and in light of our salvation and the salvation of others, so that we can present the gospel, that we can share our faith as Christ followers. With joy and liberty, without fear and trembling. And so we come to John chapter 6 in this series, Decoding Jesus. Who is Jesus? Well, in John chapter 1, we learn that Jesus is God, that he's always been God, that he always will be God. And in John chapter 2, we see him turn water into wine, take an, an inert substance and make it an organic substance. He exercises lordship over his creation. In John chapter 4, He deals with the woman at the well, and we see that salvation is available to all people, and he calls himself the Messiah. He is self-aware of his deity, of his who he is, and he continually embraces the titles that people give him, and even adds one or two of his own. Also in John chapter 4, we see Jesus healing long distance. He heals the royal official's son. He knows what he's going to do, he says what he's going to do, and he does it, and he doesn't have their street address. He doesn't even know where they live, but because he is the omnipotent, omniscient, all-knowing, all-powerful God, he heals long distance. And it says that that man came to faith because of Jesus' word and because he kept it. He said, your son will will live. In John chapter 5, we see the deity of Christ through two events. We see that Jesus is God through two events. The first event is that he heals a paralytic, somebody who's been paralyzed for over 35 years. 37 years, I think it is, actually. He heals him instantaneously, and it brings him into conflict. He's already had some skirmishes with the Jewish leaders. They know that he is the Messiah. They know that he's from God. Because in John 3, Nicodemus, representing the Pharisees, says, We know that you are a teacher sent from God because no one can do the things that you do. So he heals this man on the Sabbath. And Jesus is Lord over the Sabbath. He's not subject to the Sabbath or the misinterpretation of the Sabbath law, for that matter. He heals him. And everybody gets mad. They, they just blow off the miracle. that This man who has sat there with atrophied bones and uh, muscles and calcified joints for 37 years has been instantaneously healed. And his brain has been reconnected to his body and his bones and his joints and his ligaments and his muscles all work perfectly. And he can rise, pick up his bed and walk. And so they confront Jesus and Jesus goes through and says, look, why are you surprised at this? My Father has been working from now, from all eternity, and I've been working alongside Him. I'm eternal like His. I do what the Father does, and I do it with the same ability, I have the same power as God. My Father gives life, and I give life. I'm the author of life. I'm the only Savior. And then He tells them, those who honor the Father honor me, and the fail to honor me like honoring the Father is the fail to honor the Father, because basically Jesus claims the right to be worshipped is God. And it says they were mad. So coming to John chapter 6, you might say he's lost the Jewish leadership, he's alienated them by confronting them with things they did not want to hear. That I am in fact the Messiah, like John the Baptist said, like the miracles prove, like my teaching indicates, and you're either all in or all out. And it may not be what you want to hear, but this is the message. And they didn't want it. They wanted their safe space. They wanted to continue as they'd always continued. They didn't want to be challenged by anything that contradicted their traditions or their Tribalism and they reject him. So he leaves and he crosses the Sea of Tiberias and he feeds five thousand people. Five thousand people. And they recognize that he's the Messiah. Is this not the one that was promised? They're following him, it says in John six two, because of the signs they did. They just wanted to see him heal people. He feed he feeds them in John six two through thirteen. They realize in John six fourteen that he's the one that Moses promised. This is the Messiah they're about to make him king for their own agenda for political ends to throw off Rome we see that in John 6:15 he sends his, his disciples out into the sea and he comes to them he walks we have those miracles i talked about in John 6:16 uh, 6, through 21 the crowd follows him uh, again in John 6:22 to 26 they said rabbi how did you get here because he's crossed back over and they don't know how he did it and he says you know truly truly i say to you you're not here you're here because you want your bellies filled, not because you care about what I have to say. And then during a very careful and painstaking explanation of who he is and how and what salvation is and how you get it, and how God administers it, in John 6, 27 to 71, he alienates most of the populace. And most of his disciples walk away. Professing disciples. You know, you had, you had professing disciples in those days like you have professing Christians in these days. There are people who say they're Christians, but they don't believe the Bible, they don't believe that Jesus is the Christ, the only way to heaven, the Son of God, God the Son. And you had people there who were following him too and saying they were his followers, but when he got too precise or too clear, it was not what they wanted to hear, and they turned their back on him. So what was his message? I mean, why did they reject him so, so quickly? The same reason most people reject his message today. Salvation is by grace alone. It's the gift of God, lest anyone should boast. It's not based on what we do, it's based on what he does. And the natural man cannot understand the things of God on his own. They're foolishness to him, they're offensive to him. And people don't want to listen to this hard-to-listen-to message. There's only one truth, there's only one gospel. There's not gospel du jour, it's like you go into a cafeteria and you pick a little bit of this and a little bit of that. There's one gospel... It needs to be understood with precision. There's only one God and Savior, and he's the only one who can fix this broken world and change you from the inside out and make you his child. And there's only one means of salvation, and that is by grace, through faith, not of works. There are no safe spaces on this planet, and the only safe space is in the life to come through Jesus Christ in heaven. So let's do this. Let's understand what he taught them as God and Messiah. And I'll summarize it quickly, and then we'll get into the heart of the message. The first thing he taught them in a manner of speaking was that God gives people to him as a gift. In John six thirty seven, he says, All that the Father gives me, I will no wise cast out, but I will raise them up on the last day. The bride of Christ. We are the church. We're the people of God. We are gifts of God to his son, Jesus Christ. This is not the, of the flesh. It's the work of the Spirit. It is the Spirit that gives life. not The flesh accomplishes nothing. He explains that to them. In John 6.44 and John 6.63. Salvation is a gift granted by the Father. He makes that very clear in John 6.65. You cannot come to me unless it has been granted by the Father. You will not do it. And no one can take credit at any level. It's by grace, not by works. We are drawn to Him by God. Our salvation is granted by God. It is a gift, it's not of works, and that's not what they wanted to hear. And the reaction of that crowd then is just the same reaction that you face today in a culture that wants to think it can pull itself up by its bootstraps and that we're all on the road to God, that all roads lead to God. We just get there different ways. This is not what they wanted to hear. And so from Jesus' interaction with these people, and even with your interaction with people that you share Christ with today, you can draw three conclusions that will help you to understand why some will not listen. While some will put their fingers in the air. While some will get angry and reject you. And the first conclusion we need to draw, we need to understand is this. Is most people seek God for the wrong reason. Most people seek him for the wrong reason. In John 6, 2, we read this. And a large crowd was following him because they saw the signs that he was doing on the sick. You know, some of us watch Monday night football for some excitement. They just wanted to see a little excitement relating to miracles. They really didn't care much about anything else. It was exciting. Some wanted to follow him because they thought he was the Messiah and they wanted a political king. We see that in John 6, 15. And Jesus wants none of that. Perceiving then that they were about to take him by force to make him king, Jesus withdrew again to a mountain by himself. Jesus wasn't into ideology. He was into theology, okay? He was into the word of God, theology, theos, God, ology, study, word. He was in the study of God because he was God and he wanted people to know him. And he wasn't there to entertain them and he wasn't there to meet their political agenda. He could have cared less. You're either with him or against him. People seek God. People seek Jesus for all kinds of reasons, even today. There's the prosperity gospel. If you follow Jesus, you're going to be healthy, wealthy, and wise and not ever have any trouble. If you have enough faith, you'll be rich and famous and powerful. People come to Christ for prosperity. They want their best life now. And as we see, God has a way of challenging wrong motives and wrong theology. He does it through crisis, whether it's hurricanes or terrorist attack. Your best life isn't now. Your best life is yet to come if you have Christ.